This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. For every podcast I put out, I also put together a blog post at thefelderreport.com that features notes, links, and reports related to that episode. So if you haven't already, check out thefelderreport.com and see what you've been missing. My guest for this episode is Kirill Sokoloff. Now, for longtime listeners, Kirill needs no introduction. Last summer, he was kind enough to host me at his home in Sun Valley, Idaho, where we discussed much of the framework that makes up the foundation of Kirill's research and investment process. In this conversation, he shares how he applies this framework to the inflation debate and the most meaningful conclusions he's reached as a result of this process. Moreover, Carol explains what it all means for the economy, markets, and individual investors. So please enjoy my latest conversation with Carol Sokoloff. Ever wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. Sheep get slaughtered. Carol, welcome back to the show. Great to be here, Jesse. I think this is the third time we've done this, so I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to uh, to do it. I, I really enjoyed doing it in person with you last time, but can't always be done that way when I'm here in Arizona and I think you're in Switzerland. So um, thanks for taking the time to do this. We we spoke about a week ago. And we discussed, I, you know, for several years now, I've been kind of monitoring what I've termed as the everything bubble, essentially uh, extreme valuations in both stocks and bonds. Um, but when we spoke a week ago, you mentioned uh, the Fed is now tightening into a weak financial picture. The risks of, uh, of, of a Fed mistake or an accident are high. Um we discussed how the uh, inflation is structural and tightening into that runs the risk of stagflation followed by recession. Uh, in other words, the worst of all worlds for the central bank. Yes, well, that's, uh, that's absolutely correct. We, uh, we're having this conversation on the day of what appears to be some success in negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. So who knows where the uh, treasury curve will end up. But as of yesterday, the five and uh, 10 year curve had inverted for the first time in 16 years. And the two, two and 10 curve was down to nine basis points. That's usually a harbinger of, of a recession. We also have consumer stocks have been have been very very weak. Um, we've had uh, Home Depots down twenty six percent. Housing stocks have been slaughtered. Real disposable personal income has declined in each of the past six months. Consumer sentiment is down thirty percent in the last six months. So it's unprecedented for the Fed to be tightening into this kind of a situation. And add to that the the supply chain issue, which was bad before. And now, of course, you have China shutting down in some places and the whole Ukraine issue, and you have a really complex picture. I think it's quite reasonable to expect that there'll be stagflation towards the end of this year and then a recession. But the problem is that there are a lot of 
zombie companies that have been kept alive. And who knows what happens to them when you start tightening. The whole idea of 300 trillion in debt and being so sensitive to rising interest rates, we've never seen aggressive central bank tightening with this degree of debt. So I think it's a time we have to be uh, considerably cautious. You know, it, with, listening to you, it reminds me of a speech Stan Druckenmiller gave a couple of years ago. I think it was in middle of 2018, where he talked about the best economic predictor he's seen is the inside of the stock market. And so you mentioned consumer stocks, and I've been watching the, the relative performance of stocks like retail stocks, and you mentioned Home Depot. And to me, it's it's been astounding to see how poor retail stocks have performed. And that's been, you know, I think Stan at the time, this was mid-2018, was saying, you know, when you see that sign, it's a time to keep your eyes open and be, and be on the lookout for economic weakness. And so I, I think that is something that people aren't paying enough attention to is, yeah, we're seeing a lot of these consumer stocks really faltering. But let's get into the some of these, uh, you know, the secular forces for inflation. Uh, one of the most interesting things I think you've written about recently is this the long-term trends in capital versus labor. Can you describe kind of the underlying dynamics here and what sort of role they have to play in the trends of asset prices and inflation? Well, when we talked last summer, I mentioned my great love for Will Durant and his story of civilization and the lessons of history. I read the entire 11 volumes twice. And one of the constants of history is the cycle of wealth creation and wealth distribution. And very simply, uh, the world is not equal. There are people with greater abilities to accumulate wealth and greater ability to uh, thrive in business. And given a free reign, they're going to accumulate vast amounts of wealth. And this is as old as history. And then the wealth extreme becomes too extreme and then there's a political backlash or a revolution or what have you. And I don't think anybody disagrees that the wealth divide in the US, China, many parts of the world has reached a, a very great extreme in the last five, six, seven years. It became even more extreme after COVID. So what we're seeing is the evolution of the shift. And this is a super tanker that just doesn't all of a certain, sudden turn on a dime. But I would argue what we've seen in China uh, is very much wealth distribution, where she going after the, the big tech companies and uh, trying to create a, uh, a fairer economy and making sure that there's common prosperity. And we're going to see the same, same thing elsewhere. And it's inflationary because it means that capital is not employed as efficiently. It means that capital share as a percentage of GDP declines. In the US, it's gone up for four years. And it means that labor takes a greater, greater share. And I'm in favor of this because otherwise, capital wouldn't function, wouldn't work. And you need to have a, a rebalancing. And hopefully, it will take place in a peaceful manner. And won't be too quick and too egregious. But these cycles are very long for the last 10 or 20 or 30 years. An example is recently 
when European countries, America, have been subsidizing the rise in uh, gasoline prices. So that's that's wealth distribution. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect example. So that's that's uh, you could say it began in the U.S. with the Occupy Wall Street. You could say it began with Trump in 2016. You could say it was the election of uh, Biden. Uh, you know, the, the progressive movement is is going to gain some steam over the years because the demographics favor the progressives. The rising generation is very much into the idea of wealth distribution and their their largest voting bloc in history in the U.S. And, you know, within five and 10 years, there'll be a very dominant factor. Yeah, it it reminds me of uh, a quote that I've I've focused on um, recently. Uh, way back in 1999, Warren Buffett wrote for Fortune in a kind of a now famous piece where he was warning about this, the stock market at the time. He, he wrote, I quote, if corporate investors in aggregate are going to eat an ever-growing portion of the American economic pie, some other group will have to settle for a smaller portion, and that would justifiably raise political problems. In my view, a major, major reslicing of the pie just isn't going to happen, uh, end quote. Uh, of course, like most great value investors, he was very early in this idea. Obviously, uh, corporate investors took an even greater slice of the American pie over the subsequent years. Um, but is this what you mean when you say wealth creation cycle is potentially over and we're now entering a new period of wealth distribution? Well, in recent years, we've seen uh, minimum wage increases all over the United States. We've seen major companies have uh, numerous wage increases, you know, from 15 to 20, uh, from 18 to $25 an hour. It's been really amazing. And added to this, of course, is you have the great resignation. And uh, people are reevaluating where they want to live, what they want to do. And a lot of them found themselves in a job that they hated, that was underpaid, and in a place where living, living expenses were very high. So you leave California and move to Mississippi or whatever, and you can sell your house in California and reinvest a third of the proceeds and have a lot of money left over. So there's a lot of, of this going on that I think is very permanent, but that's adding to the, the labor issue. And then of course, there's the demographic factor uh, that has shifted, I think, dramatically towards fewer and fewer workers available in the workplace. Right. Um, so what are the, the major implications for the economy and the markets of this new trend from wealth creation to wealth distribution? Well, it's going to mean inflation. Um, I would argue that the 40-year disinflation trend and declining interest rates is over. And we're probably in a stair-step cycle has occurred in the post-war period where you know, interest rates went up and there was a recession and it came down, but you went up and up and up and up and up. So even if there's a recession in 2023, inflation isn't going to come back down to where it was, nor will uh, the long end, nor will the short end. So the first is a kind of repricing of, of assets. Of course, costs are going to go up and with the huge burden of debt, this means interest expense 
which has been going down for 40 years, it's hard to believe, could actually reverse and go up. I mean, you were paid to borrow. You were crazy if you didn't borrow. Here in Switzerland, you, you, can, you can borrow 10-year money for 1%. Who would want to put cash down for that? Right. And I know last time I looked, I'm sure it's changed, but in London a couple of years ago, if you wanted to buy a house, you could get financing at 10% for, um, I mean, 10 years for, for 1%. So that's certainly one factor. And inflation is a tax and it eats into purchasing power, both for, for corporations and individuals, governments as well. And when, when that happens, then how are you going to resolve it? Is the corporation going to eat the cost? Is the corporation going to pass it on? And what about the, the wage earner and the consumer who has much more power now than he's had in the past? Uh, we're already seeing uh, strikes in many, many parts of the world and, and people who are in a critical position uh, here in, in Italy um, the truckers are threatening to go on strike. The, uh, in Germany, the, uh, the security workers were threatening to go on strike. The rail workers uh, in Canada, which is a very critical part of the supply chain, were threatening to go on strike. So this is just the first salvo of, of, of that experience. But it's going to mean tougher corporate profits and it's going to mean that governments are going to have to be thinking very sensitively about how do we keep consumer purchasing power whole. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to mean more subsidies, you know, more pass-ons on top of what we had during COVID, you know, on top of what we've already seen on gasoline. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting because it is a, a major shift uh, underway. I think people recognize that we have inflation now, but I think a lot of people believe that it's cyclical rather than a structural shift. So Keynes supposedly said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? In September 2020, you predicted that disinflation was over and that big inflation was coming. In December, you changed your mind on uh, December 2020. You changed your mind on demographics and the role that it plays in inflationary trends, um, and you shortly thereafter play, turned bullish on on oil. What was it that precipitated this change in thinking? Well, I was the biggest bull on disinflation on the planet in 1982. I wrote a book called "Disinflation Ending." Are you ready? There were about five people in the world who believed it could happen. Long-term Treasuries were yielding 14, 15 percent. Uh, bonds were considered certificates of confiscation right. when it was the best, best buy of a lifetime. Yeah. And people had just been uh, imbued with the belief that inflation was here forever. So the longer that that mentality uh, continued, or the reverse of that, I should say, which is disinflation, the more you start looking for signs, right? So 40 years, or 38, 40 years, actually, uh, uh, September 2020, is, uh, is a very long time to continue a trend. And we saw action in the markets indicating that those that have been left behind, the cyclicals, the inflation sensitive, all, this, all the, the sectors that had done so poorly for 10 years were starting to act better 
than the sectors that had done so well in the prior 10 years. And that was a signal to us that the cycle was turning. You know, you could you could argue that it was combined with the with the election uh, when the Democrats were going to win and there was going to be a certain amount of wealth distribution. Or you could argue it was it was massive underinvestment, which had taken place in metals and energy and many sectors of the economy. Or um, you could argue it was supply chain or all of the above. But we read the markets and we're very sensitive to what the markets are telling us. We look at them very agnostically every single day. We look at hundreds of charts and we, we follow uh, Twitter. And we try to see what the sentiment is. We're looking for extremes. So that was that was a very clear signal to us that the time had changed and the tide had turned. And so, in December of 2020, I read a book called The Great Demographic Reversal by Charles Goodhart. And up until that time, I'd been a believer that demographics were very deflationary. That means uh, the, the less births, the smaller the working population, obviously uh, the demand is going to suffer. So in 1997, I started studying demographics. I wrote an article called more coffins than cradles in 76 countries. And we started studying Japan because it was the first country that had had peak population, peak working population, uh, the first country that entered the, the baby bust. And by the way, Japan in the 80s was very robust in fertility. And so we, we followed Japan and deflation became very entrenched. The bond market in Japan, we concluded, was not an outlier, but the leader. So um, taking all, all that, uh, this book, The Great Demographic Reversal, makes a very strong case that this inflation came because of uh, WTO admittance and Eastern Europe and China basically doubled the workforce. And now we have an aging of the population that is greater and faster than any time in the history of man. And we have no idea what this means, but it means that the supply of labor is going to be less and less. Yeah. And the dependency ratios are growing up all over the world, which is, which is inherently pretty inflationary because it means you have less and less active workers supporting more and more people in retirement. Yeah. I, I thought the book was fascinating, too. I thought they did a very good job in explaining how demographics uh, is inflationary or disinflationary and why Japan hasn't really fit into that model uh, over the last couple of decades. Um, so in the midst of this demographic shift, we've also seen major shifts um, in globalization and in global investment or underinvestment in raw materials paired with put all these things together. And do you think we're witnessing a perfect storm of inflationary impulses right now? Yeah, I think that globalization definitely peaked. And you can go back to market date. Was it Brexit? Was it the election of Trump? And whether you love or hate Trump, one of the things that he did was to push forward the idea of uh, economic nationalism and protectionism, which of course is very dangerous in my opinion. That's what 
caused the depression of, of the 30s. And so we definitely have that momentum. And when he uh, told Huawei and ZTE that there would be no more uh, exports of technology, that was the key turning point. And China looked at that and said, we are very much at risk. We have to be self-sufficient. And President Xi has said many times in his speeches, referred to self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency. The same for the EU. And of course, what's going on now with Russia, Ukraine and the sanctions is just making all these countries say, you know, we've got to be self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. And this means duplication of supply chains. Before it was, you know, you located wherever the cheapest uh, place to manufacture and it was just in time inventory and you squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And now you're doing the exact opposite. So reshoring in America is a wonderful thing. I'm much in favor of it, but the cost to inflation is going to be massive. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fascinating to me that these we see these demographic shifts, the, the shift in globalization towards deglobalization or you know, nationalistic economic policy. Uh, at the same time that we've seen a huge underinvestment in commodities and raw materials over, you know, five, 10 years, that also adds to these inflationary pressures. Very, very much so. And one of the great ironies, and I say that Mr. Market is a cynic, and Mr. Market has never been a greater cynic than now. And I'll give you an example. So the ESG movement that we support enormously, I love the environment. I have a solar field in my home in the Bahamas, and I fought with the government there uh, for years to to go all solar, and maybe we're finally getting some traction. That the problem was that there was over-optimism on how quickly it would occur. And I give you some statistics. So in the world, there's 1.3 billion vehicles. And 95% of them, and I'm being conservative, probably more, use liquid fuel, which means petroleum. And the number of electric vehicles in the world, I'm guessing right now, is 15 million. So how do you go from 15 million to 1.3 billion? How long will it take? Now, even if you had the manufacturing capacity, and even if the spare parts and ingredients that go into it were there, you still would take decades. But the problem is that there are ingredients that the electric vehicle needs that are in shortage. And they are copper, lithium, cobalt, and nickel. We have a a 13D EV metals index, and maybe things are changed based on the news today. But the last time I looked, that index was up since November of um, oops since November 172%. So it just gives you an idea. The, the average electric vehicle uses 80 kilograms of copper versus 20 kilograms for an ICE vehicle. And We're very immersed in copper. I know a lot about it. There is a lot of copper in the world, but it takes 10 to 15 years to to get it out of the ground. So even if you had this massive 
push towards electric vehicles. There are bottlenecks preventing you from getting there. And then you have the other problem, which is we're estimating, and I think this is very conservative, that those 1.3 billion vehicles probably have an embedded current capital investment of, say, 9 trillion U.S. And the average life at 16 years or 17 years, cars are built to last longer now. So that means that, let's just say you have a magic wand, say, well, we're going to produce a billion electric vehicles tomorrow. And we have the wherewithal to do it. But what about the 9 trillion that, that people have invested in their, in their vehicles? Something, something will have to be done to make them good. The point being that this evolution is going to take a long time. And because of this, the ESG movement pushed to uh, push the oil companies not to invest, to buy back their shares, and to distribute capital to shareholders. And of course, OPEC, uh, you know, they have social needs, so they don't really invest all that much. So as a result, there's been just massive, massive underinvestment. And that's the real cause of why oil is higher. Obviously, what's going on in Ukraine has pushed things up a little bit. But even if that's resolved, this other problem isn't going to go away. And that's that's a major, major issue. Yeah. And but, it's, it's very uh, inflationary. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the, the cost of, um, you know, the, the materials that go into the EV production are just soaring. But also, I think I read just in the Wall Street Journal this week that the average EV is 35% more expensive than the average, you know, combustion engine vehicle. So there's still an affordability issue there, even before you kind of factor in the rising cost of, of EV production. So you're right, it's, it's going to take much, much longer to, to transition, especially, you know, I think in your reports, you've mentioned too, the average life of a combustion engine vehicle is also um, growing. So they're, they're going to stay on the roads longer. And, and so it's going to take a very long time. Um, I want to come back to, um, you know, uh, commodity specifically, but food prices are something that uh, you've written about. Um, food prices are soaring. And that's a development that regularly leads to social unrest, um, as you've at 13D regularly informed your readers. Uh, even without this painful dynamic, though, it looked as if we were headed for more of the sort of political problems that Buffett hinted, hinted at uh, back in 1999. And you discussed in terms of uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street and the move towards populist uh, politicians. Food price inflation seems to only make these types of things, these trends, that much more likely to continue. I guess what sort of social unrest do you think we could see as a result? And to what degree do you think this it could push the trend in wealth distribution even further? Well, Bezos said uh, many times that I, he listens to the anecdote. And I'll give you an anecdote. So one of my colleagues owns a small farm in Scotland, and he went about four weeks ago to a town hall meeting. And normally no one shows up, but this was packed. Every farmer in the region was there. And they all were complaining about how the cost of fertilizer has gone up 250%. And the farmers were faced with the issue that they couldn't afford to buy fertilizer. So some were leaving their land fallow, 
Some were, were going to go ahead and plant. And there's a very big uh, Norwegian uh, producer fertilizer that estimates, and Mosaic also estimates, that if you don't use fertilizer, yields can go down by 45 or 50%. Obviously, they're speaking their own book, but I think there's a lot of science on that. So we have no idea how farmers are going to respond to these higher prices, and are they going to, to plant or plant less, and will yields be less? Take Brazil, for example, which is a major producer of foodstuffs. They import all of their, of their fertilizer. And they have a crop that is coming in September, planting at that time. And we understand they haven't yet made, made their decisions and they haven't yet bought fertilizer. So this is just an example. And so what we're seeing now is just the first wave. It's gonna be, it's gonna be the, the spring crop. It's gonna be the fall crop. It's gonna be four, five, six, nine months from now is we're going to see the problems. And a country that, of course, very dependent on Ukraine and uh, Russia, maybe the Middle East, Africa, are already showing great unrest in the early days. And there's one thing that, that causes social unrest, and that's higher food prices or unavailability. You may remember with the Russian wheat failure in 2010, the governments of Tunisia, Syria, and uh, Egypt were overthrown. It's just a sampling. That's just you know one country having a poor uh, food crop. The Chinese are saying this could be their, their worst wheat crop in history. I mean, wherever you look, you have some kind of a problem on, on the food end. And it's, it's a terrifying prospect, to be honest with you. I was going to say worrisome, but you're absolutely right. It's terrifying. Uh, you know, when I look at University of Michigan, consumer sentiments already plunging and we still have strong, very strong economic growth. But, you know, real wages are just not keeping up. Real wages are in decline. You throw in, you know, rapidly rising food prices and gas prices, and it really is a troublesome prospect. Um, how do you see this affecting, uh, you know, politics going forward. I mean, we had the Capitol riots. We've had, you know, some rising um, political problems, as Buffett termed it, already. Uh, I, I know it's probably impossible to predict, you know, the, the next thing, but it, it seems like we're headed in a direction that's not very fun to imagine. Exactly. And I can't imagine a situation where democracies are not going to make payments to their citizens to help them survive the higher cost of living. Yeah. But already there are 900 million people in the world before all this that were having uh, serious food problems. So this is all after two and a half years of COVID. And so the, the, the temper of the world, the stresses is at an unprecedented level. And I don't know if you read Neil Howe's fourth turning, but we are, we're in the fourth turning. This is the crisis period, right. and it's unfolding exactly as it's supposed to. I was going to ask you about the fourth turning because it seems like it, it, we are in that, in that phase. But um, I, I guess in light of all this, uh, these inflationary impulses and things, 13D recently published a piece suggesting 
the odds of hyperinflation are rising steadily. How do you define hyperinflation and how are you monitoring it? In other words, what are the signs you're looking for to determine whether we've crossed that Rubicon from inflation into hyperinflation? Well, it's a good question. In the uh, late 70s, inflation in the U.S. got up to 12%. So double-digit inflation, I think you could you can call hyperinflation. You know, for a country like the U.S., I mean, obviously Zimbabwe, hyperinflation has a different definition. And what has been missing so far in the equation, we've had soaring commodity prices, but we've had a strong dollar for a variety of reasons. But were for some reason the dollar to turn around and get weak, as it did in the 79-80 period, then you could very easily have uh, much higher inflation. And one of the reasons why the dollar has been strong, I would argue, is because the Fed is is now raising rates. Uh, And it's interesting that the U.S. has the highest inflation rate in the developed world. Yeah. So uh, at some point, if recession comes, uh, what will the Fed do? Will the Fed reverse itself and and pivot? And that's when the dollar will get weak or the prospect of that happening. It will will happen, as always, before the event. The market will anticipate that the Fed has reached the end of its tightening. And it's the $64,000 question is, does the Fed want to cause a recession to beat inflation, or will they back off before they get to that point? Or is the, are the tools just so imprecise that they will just make a mistake and break something before they, they back off? Either way, uh, they're going to have to pivot, and that's where you have the risk of the dollar getting very weak. And with the U.S. being the world's largest debtor, $16 trillion the last time I looked, there could be a lot of exodus out of, uh, of U.S. financial assets. The other thing that's worth mentioning here, you know, when people talk about risk assets and bonds not being risk assets, I always used to laugh because when you have an asset that is at a 5,000-year high in price, low in yield, to say it's not a risk asset to me is just laughable. Yeah, um, <laughs> We have the greatest loss, I think, in, in bonds in stock market, I mean, in, in financial history uh, in the first quarter. And if this were to continue, it would be, it would be really, really dangerous. Yeah. Even, even, the, even the JGB is going up in yield. And, it's, and what's another thing that's been amazing is to watch how weak the yen has been. And why is the yen weak? You know, it's, I can give you plenty of answers, but it's just another example of how unstable the markets are. The, the, the nickel market had to be shut down. And then the trades that were done were undone. How can you call that an honest market? Yeah. What kind of confidence do you have in a market that that undoes the trade? You made a great decision. You were wrong, Nickel. And then now all of a sudden, the powers that be don't like the fact that you were there. So 
It's canceled. And the yen, of course, there's a big yen carry trade. So who knows? So I'm saying there's so much interconnectedness that the risks of a crisis are very high. And it sounds like you're watching the currency markets for that clue as to where, you know, where inflation, you know, gets out of hand, where it essentially gets into that hyperinflationary mode. Uh, you talked a little bit about bonds. Um, if we've truly entered a new paradigm characterized by inflation, wealth distribution, how can investors best protect themselves in that sort of environment? Well, if I'm right, bonds are our certificates of confiscation. Right. right. <laughs> 40 years later. Yeah. It's just amazing how these things uh, work. Uh, but for many years, the 60-40 has been the, the Bible, 60% equities, 40% fixed income. And with, even though you lost two or three percentage points in performance, you had one asset was going up while the other asset was going down. And now you're in a period where at least this year where both have been going down. So I would certainly not be in fixed income. And I don't want to trade it. I don't want to be short fixed income. I don't want to be long. And I just, you know, leaving it aside as an asset class. Uh, I think that we like uranium a lot. Um, we've been bullish on it for since 2018. And while the uranium price has doubled, it's still under the cost of production. And it's, uh, you know, it takes a long time to, to bring on a new nuclear plant. But the Russians, of course, <laughs> you know, Mr. Market is so cynical. The Russians, uh, I think, produce 50% of, of, of the enriched uranium. And uh, between Belarus and, and Kazakhstan and Russia, they produce a lot of the world's uranium. So if you ban uh, Russian exports of uranium, what are you going to do? So you, there's, a real, there's a real crisis there coming. So we like uranium a lot. Copper, I mentioned. And the only really pure uh, copper play which is also sustainable as a company called 4N Mining that I'm involved in. It's located in Saskatchewan, which depending who you talk to what day of the week is the first or the third best mining jurisdiction. And we don't have to think too hard on how important a safe jurisdiction is when we see what's going on. Yes. So copper is certainly, is certainly uh, another one. Um, even though some people may uh, be squeamish about it, I think that oil service is, is a good place to be. It was a terrible place for 10 or 12 years. It's hated. And I'd rather be in the oil service Schlumberger, you know, a big, big, strong company, rather than an oil producer. There could be excess profits tax. Uh, there could be, you know, forcing... Uh, the shale producers to to keep keep uh, drilling even though they're not making money even though Wall Street has said we're not going to finance anymore. So I just think that's uh, that's a better place to be. Defense, we've loved defense for a long time, and it was clear that rising tensions were going to increase defense spending. 
So, you know, even Europe, even Germany is now going to spend more money. Of course, the Japanese are going to spend more. The Chinese are spending more. The U.S. is spending more. So, so that's, uh, that's certainly another area. And, uh, you know, the, the cobalt, nickel, and lithium is harder to find vehicles. There are a few pure plays in nickel, but it's, it's hard. So I've just, I've just focused on copper. And I know you've spoken with um, Pierre Lassonde recently. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on precious metals? Well, I love, I love gold. You know, the, the first thing about gold is it's, it's out of the system. If you owned a physical bullion, uh, I'm not in favor of ETFs. Uh, I'm fine with gold mining companies in good jurisdictions, but it's the cheapest asset on the planet. It is a big sell-off uh, today. We've come down a lot in the last couple of weeks. Now, is this is this the end of it? Is it going to get worse? You know, I don't really care. I just think it's it should be a very important part of your portfolio. 10 to 15% pure Belize in the World Gold Council. And I have a combination of 50% gold bullion and 50% uh, growth gold mining shares. Yeah. The growth golds have done well in this period, uh, even with a, a, a gold price that was, during a, was in a correction period. And there's something else I would mention is the best time to own a mining company is in its developmental stage. So the mining cycle is very long, be 10 years and 15 years. And just like, you know, Mr. Market becomes over-brilliant and becomes over-depressed. So there's the same cycles in, in mining. So there's huge long periods of underinvestment. And then, then finally prices go up a lot. And then finally the, the mining executives who've been told you've got to be careful about capital preservation and, and don't spend money unwisely, finally just get crazy and start buying stuff, you know, as we're coming towards the top and then the cycle goes over and over again. So from the standpoint of performance, it's the junior miners, it's the ones that are just coming into the development stage are the ones that give the best performance. So that's where I'm in, in, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the junior goals. But I think the whole space, I mean, Apple is worth what, three trillion and all the gold mining shares are 650 million. Right, yeah. And I would add a very important point. And I think that the confiscation of Russia's foreign exchange reserves, whether warranted or not, was the crossing of the Rubicon. And there's roughly 15 trillion of foreign exchange reserves. And let's go back for a second to why that was created, and that was the emerging Asian crisis of 96, 97, 98. And these countries had huge capital inflows and huge capital outflows. They resolved to build up a lot of foreign exchange reserves so this wouldn't happen to them. And a lot of the foreign exchange reserves are in those kinds of countries. And I would say about seven or eight trillion is in US treasuries. And they are noticed that if America doesn't like what you do, um, it may not be yours. If you have, you know, humanitarian crisis or, you know, uh, 
you do something. And so I think that money is going to gradually shift from treasuries in, into gold bullion. Yeah, I think, you know, there's been a, uh, a, for the past decade, central banks have been acquiring bullion and that's been a, a trend reversal from, uh, you know, what we've seen from prior decades. So I, I want to totally change gears here. We've talked a ton about markets and inflation. In terms of your you know, your personal life, I know the Dalai Lama has had a very powerful impact. I just finished a wonderful book that he participated in with the Archbishop Desmond Tutu called The Book of Joy. And in it, the authors write, quote, so much of what causes heartache is our wanting to things uh, wanting things to be different than they are, end quote. This struck me as an important truism, not only for life, but also for investing. So many investors I see struggle because they fail to adapt to changing market environments. In contrast, adapting and shifting to market dynamics seems to be one of your greatest strengths. Where do you think you developed this ability, this openness? Well, I think it's a flexibility of, of mind. And as you know, I went deaf. I have a cochlear implant. So I, yeah, I'm able to see things that other people don't see, or I'm able to, to see things that other people see, but they, that they don't really see. And if you look back at the evolution of 13D, we have reinvented ourselves so many times because I see an opportunity and we go to where the opportunity is and we leave the old. Uh, I mean, I started off with 13D filings and takeovers and we were the world's expert. And then I saw that that game was over when uh, Pickens um, Unical happened. We got involved in distressed securities and bankruptcies. And then we, we, uh, we got involved in Hong Kong. We went to Brazil. And we got involved in, in technology and mobile phones and oil and so on. So it's just, just shifting all over the place. So it's a flexibility of mind. Many people are linear thinkers. I would argue most people are linear thinkers. They're more comfortable being doing the same thing. But I'm looking for change. I love change. I think change is the most exciting thing that there is in the world. And we've been on top of disruption since 1995. And I don't think we've missed a single one. Maybe we didn't invest as wisely as we could have, but we, we, we weren't surprised by any of it. And when I first met the, the Dalai Lama, which was four days after 9-11, actually, and I was in his, his palace in Dharamsala, I asked him, what is mankind most desperately in need of? And he thought about it and he said, you know, people rush for this and they rush after this and they rush after this and they go after this and they go after this and they go after this. He went on for about five minutes talking about everybody is, is looking for. And then he said what they really want, and I can still hear his words, peace of mind. Peace of mind. <laughs> and of course, with multitasking, nobody has peace of mind. And right. I don't know how people can function uh, without having some peace of mind. But I have in all my offices a Herman Hesse Siddhartha quote. And I try to live this way, but no one's perfect. And I'm far from it. Quote, but he learned more from the river than Vasudeva could teach him. He learned from it continually. Above all, he learned from it how to listen, to listen with a still heart, with a waiting open soul, without passion, without desire, without judgment, without opinions. Yeah, 
That's fantastic. And it's actually a perfect way to wrap this up because you've said several times through this interview and, and just through reading your research, it's obvious that you sometimes have a thesis, a macro thesis, but you're listening to the markets and you're letting the markets tell you what's happening in the world and and uh, and and just trying to align yourself with those with those trends. And it's just a uh, it's a very simple but a very meaningful way to approach this whole process. So, Carol, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I, I'm really grateful to you for sharing your wisdom with us today. Yes, it's always great to be with you. And thank you for the invitation to be here today. We'll do it again soon. Thanks. All right. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.